My name is Phil Stinson. I'm a professor on the faculty of the Criminal Justice Program at Bowling Green State University. I think it might be helpful if several of our Police Integrity Lost podcast episodes discuss issues relating to the research methods we use in our studies. I recently sat down with Steve Brewer, a professor in the Administration of Justice Department at the Shenango campus at Penn State, to discuss our use of decision tree analysis as part of our predictive analytic statistical operations in our police crime research. Part of that discussion follows for this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast. Steve, in some of the research projects we've been doing together, we've been working with decision tree analysis, classification tree analysis, and I'm curious why you think this is the right methodology for what we've been doing. If you were going to explain decision trees to someone who didn't know anything about decision tree analysis, what would you tell them? I think the major advantage in using decision trees is its ability to examine multiple factors and their combined effects on the dependent variable of the outcome. For instance, within the social science field, a lot of things such as age, gender, race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status are usually considered demographic variables, but also are usually correlated with one another. Typically, correlated variables in social sciences and academia in general are difficult to deal with in a statistical model. So the major advantage of using decision tree analysis is its inherent ability to deal with them. And the way that decision tree analysis deals with the interaction variables is that it uses those variables to essentially build the predictive model, as opposed to some of the other popular statistical techniques which use one-way relationships, meaning that A influences B, which does not account for the influence of C, which could influence both A and B. So when I think of correlation, I always try to think of a way that I can explain correlation to students, because I have trouble just on the fly in the classroom thinking of a way to do it. And I always end up saying something like, when we're talking about variables that are correlated, we're talking about variables that are running together, that are behaving the same way. So if you've got age and years of service, so how long somebody's been a police officer, for example, in the research that I work with, and their age, both are going to go up in the same units, one-year periods, and that's where you could get correlation where they're they're both behaving exactly the same way? Correct. But what decision trees allows you to do is look at the compounding impact of both of those on a certain income, as opposed to looking at just age being correlated with, say, DUIs, and also years of service. You're looking at the compounding effect of age and years of service and how they impact DUI while being a police officer together. Decision tree looks at the additive effects of impact factors or independent variables on an outcome as opposed to just looking at them one at a time. When we first asked you to work with us on decision tree analysis and with my data set dealing with police crime, what we were concerned with was I was presenting one of my colleagues, John Lederbach, with bivariate tables where we're looking at relationship or association between two variables and whether those relationships were statistically significant at the bivariate level, just the two variables. And we were looking at that time at specific drugs, so cocaine, marijuana, heroin, things like that, and different types of police corruption. So shakedowns from drug dealers would be one of the corruption-related variables that we were looking at. What we wanted to know was whether we could predict the type of corruption activity based on specific drugs, whether cocaine was driving certain types of 
corruption activity. What Lederbach kept telling me was, at least what I heard him saying was, these stats are no good. So I'd fly off the handle and start yelling at him. We'd go back and forth. And after a few days of this, I realized what he really was saying to me was, you aren't telling me what I want to know by looking at chi-square, where we're just looking at the statistical significance of associations at the bivariate level, and then we'd look at the Kramer's V calculation for the strength of that association. And what he wanted to know was something completely different. He wanted to know which of those factors or drugs cause the influence. And you really can't tell that. And in the multivariate logistic regression model, you really can't tell it the same ways either. So when he finally described to me what he wanted to know, I said, well, you know, what you're really saying to me is you want to conduct the factor analysis. Right. So we were sitting, I think he was actually sitting where you're sitting. I was sitting here, and I whipped around here. These are all my books dealing with statistics and research methods. And I started looking up, what are these statistical assumptions? What are the assumptions that you need to have in place in order to be able to use that statistical operation? What we found was the type of data we have, the nominal data, and there are a few other considerations, that we weren't able to use factor analysis because our data... It would violate the assumptions. It would make it an inappropriate statistical operations run. And when we went through this with a number of different ideas, I kept thinking through, well, you're really talking about factor analysis, but we can't do factor analysis. And after a few minutes, I said, decision tree analysis. We need to talk to Steve Brewer because Steve Brewer knows decision tree analysis. We don't know anything about decision tree analysis. And we're smart enough to know that when we don't know something, we always go to a colleague who can right. tell us something about this and bring something to the table that adds to our ability to conduct statistical analyses that are appropriate for whatever it is we're trying to accomplish. And then since then, we've realized that decision tree analysis is amazingly helpful for the different types of research studies that we do. So one example of the project that you and I are getting ready to start that we really haven't gotten into yet is looking at, and again, we're talking about police crimes, so police officers who've been arrested for certain types of crime. And one of the things we want to look at is a study that deals with officers who've been arrested for a crime that's a sex-related crime. There's something about it that's sex-related, even if they weren't charged with a sex crime. So we've coded it in my typology of police crime that almost all crime by police officers is alcohol-related, drug-related, violence-related, sex-related, and or profit-motivated. So we've coded these cases, thousands and thousands of cases, and we've got at this time six or 700 cases that are sex-related cases. And then when I ran an initial decision tree analysis in our statistical software, SPSS. And, and again, I really don't know a whole lot about this, but when I ran the tree, set it up with the parameters that you had given me to, to run this analysis, it was interesting to me because what I saw there was amazing to me because oftentimes when I'm working with colleagues, most often John Lederbach, they're trying to figure out, okay, we've got this particular study we want to conduct. We've got this particular dependent variable we want to look at. What's our hook here? What are we going to be able to do to make a study out of this? What are, what are we going after? What are we looking at? What is it we're trying to measure here? And what I saw was something that totally laid out for sex-related police crime arrests exactly what the study we need to conduct was because what the decision tree analysis showed us was that the most influential variable that we have with our data with sex-related crime by police officers was the most influential variable, most influential factor, was the relationship of the victim to the officer who was arrested. And everything else flowed off of that. So what we have is a victimology paper here, really. We have a paper that's 
We would have gotten to that eventually, but it laid out the whole roadmap of what this paper is. It's not data mining. It's it's actually, you know, what can we predict with this data? And in this case, it's uh, the relationship with the victim. So whether the victim is an unrelated child, a stepchild of the officer who's arrested, a spouse, a former spouse, a boyfriend, girlfriend, all those things matter. And depending on the relationship and the sex and gender of the victim, totally drives what happens in terms of the case outcomes, both criminal court case outcomes and adverse employment outcomes. And I think what you're identifying is one of the primary main utilities of decision trees is that it, number one, identifies right off the bat what is the most important variable in the model. And in a lot of other techniques, you actually have to hand compute that to figure out the rank order of variables by importance. What decision trees is that it automatically identifies right off the bat, here is the most significant factor in your data. And then it builds the model based upon the responses to that variable. So when you say most significant, is it synonymous to say the most influential? Yes. You know, the entire data is driven off the responses again to that data. So if they said yes, you're going to have a completely different outcome for those individuals versus the individuals who would say no to that data. Well, for your example, the type of relationships. So for certain, you know, let's say they have, what are the categories for that variable, for that relationship? For the relationship of the victim, current spouse, former spouse, child or stepchild, other relative where it's not a spouse or a child, unrelated child, unrelated acquaintance, which we put the same as stranger. So if they're not related in some way, a lot of our cases that are dealing with sex-related crime by police officers who have been arrested, we seem to have, when we deal with child victims, for example, oftentimes it will be the girlfriend's child. So not even a stepchild, but a child that lives in the house with the officer who's unrelated, but is the child of the significant other partner. We'll use that example, for instance, we have current spouse versus ex-spouse. Now, again, the, another advantage of decision trees is that when we look at those two groups, they're distinctive from one another because they're obviously not the same. The decision tree analysis allows us to make predictions for each of those distinct groups, as opposed to other types of analysis which would just give you a uniform application across those groups. So here we're actually splitting out the data based upon certain specific groups, and each of those groups are going to have different levels of prediction for the outcome. So one of the variables that was influential further down our decision tree, which is really, as you've described it to me, and as you look at it, it looks like a family tree when you print it out. When we looked at male children, so boys, who were unrelated to the officer who was arrested, we've got a child who's a boy who's unrelated to the officer who's arrested, who's the victim, of the officer. In those cases, we're able to predict that the officer is likely to resign from the police department after being arrested. Where we don't see that if the child victim is a girl, for example. So that's perhaps a gross example, but it's, a, it's an explicit example that really makes the point that you really can predict this. And we can, when somebody were to give me a fact pattern, involving an officer, whether they're arrested or not, you know, what, what's the outcome going to be? You know, what are the risk factors here for an agency, you know, risk analysis type situation? We really can predict not only the employment outcomes, the case outcomes, but we can also predict how old an officer is, how many years of service, what type of agency they work for, where in the country that agency is located, things like that, right? So, right, you're correct. And 
uh, I guess my counter question to you is that what there's this normal, shall we say, or the most common statistical techniques in the social sciences, could you have done that? Well, no, because with our data, we're dealing with nominal level data. So how would you define nominal level data? Something you cannot rank order. There, there's no measurable distance between them. You cannot rank order. So you know, it's a lot of ones and zeros. Right. Exactly right. So a lot of times, it's uh, when we say ones and zeros. What we're talking about is if we have a yes/no variable, zero will quite often be no, and one will be a yes. Right. Or absent or present. Right. Or male might be one, and female might be zero. So the absence or presence of some characteristic would be nominal level of data. So because we have so many variables that are nominal level of data. And because our dependent or outcome variable that we're trying to predict is nominal level in most of the studies that we're doing with our data set, we would tend to do what's known as logistic regression because of the nominal level data. So I can, among other things, tell you the simple odds of predicting something. The simple odds of conviction after an officer's been arrested for DUI are three times greater if the officer was involved in a DUI-related traffic accident with fatalities. For example, and I don't remember if that's exactly accurate, but that gives you the example right. of the types of things that we could predict. So we can predict the direction in which something will work, whether they're more likely or less likely to be convicted, more likely or less likely to lose their job, more likely or less likely to be arrested for a certain type of offense, a drug-related offense, for example. But that's really what we can do with that data. And that's useful information, but as we found when John Lederbach is telling me my statistics are all wrong, what he's really saying is you're not telling me what I want to know, which is which drugs are related to which types of corruption. And by the way, the answer generally is cocaine. Right. So cocaine's the driving force, cocaine, then heroin, marijuana, crack. Not necessarily in that order, but starting with cocaine seems to drive things. And we're really not able to tell that until we looked at the decision tree analysis where we didn't have to worry about violating these statistical assumptions. So I think what we're really highlighting here is that with the decision tree analysis, we can identify patterns within the predictors that allow us to come up with some type of general finding to say that certain ages, certain agency types, or within the current research we're working on, the number of fatalities, we come up with patterns of behavior that we can use to predict the outcome as opposed to, you know, regression models. You really cannot come up with a pattern. As you just discussed, you come up with percentage increases or decreases per variable, but not just a general pattern. So, you know, another main advantage um, decision trees is you can create a pattern of behavior that you can use. For instance, you know, certain age, certain years of the service, whether or not there was a fatality present in the case, they'll all come up with a uniform finding for a certain outcome. You know, some of the other findings in terms of the research that you worked on with me that I find most interesting, in the DUI study that we've been working on for the past three or four months now, it seems, it's really interesting that in some of the classification tree models, I was really impressed that some variables became influential that I'd never considered before, even variables that are in our data that we'd never even thought about how we might be able to use. An example is in some of the models where we were predicting, let's say, conviction, whether somebody would be convicted after being arrested at DUI, driving under the influence of alcohol or drug. 95-96% of the cases were alcohol-related, not drug-related. And there were other factors that were more influential, so we're way down the tree. But we saw in a few instances where the date of arrest 
became statistically significant and influential. So we had situations where in certain states, if an officer was employed by a law enforcement agency located in certain states, there was a 100% conviction if they were arrested after a certain date and a much lower percentage conviction if they had been arrested before that date. So we'll arbitrarily take the date of, let's say, the end of December in 2005. So roughly New Year's 2006, we saw in some models, anyone arrested after that date that was employed in an agency in one of several states, they were 100% convicted. And one of the states I remember specifically was Michigan. Because I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, wow, that's something we've never really seen before. We've never had any sort of statistical analysis that we could look at that. What it seemed like was we were approximating what you find in time series analyses where you're looking at trying to see the effect of a criminal justice policy change or legislation, a new law that goes into effect. So a lot of times you'll see that time series analysis where you've got hundreds of data collection points where you're looking at an interrupted time series where you've got a date certain where a new law went into effect. So maybe it's a change in the drinking age from 18 to 21. Maybe it's a mandatory seatbelt law or the absence or presence of motorcycle helmets, that kind of thing. You can look at fatality, uh, you're looking at uh, mortality rates. And what we saw here was changes in behavior in terms of the conviction. It's change in plea bargain behavior and that we're really looking at dynamics of plea bargain considerations and offers. So dynamics dealing with the courtroom work group, meaning the judge, the prosecutor, and the defense attorney. And then we've got the defendant here. What we've got is a unique situation where in the DUI data, the defendant is, in all of our cases, an expert on traffic laws. They're street cops primarily. They're cops. They're law enforcement officers. They're police officers. They're deputy sheriffs. So they are consumers of traffic laws. And in the case of Several of these states, you know, Illinois, Michigan, New York, and interestingly, New Mexico. I can't think of the other states, but those are four right there. And in each of those states, we saw that there was some significant policy change or new legislation, a subsequent conviction. So you've got two or three convictions. So a lot of differences in different states. But what we saw there was the change in behavior as to conviction. If you want to treat conviction as behavior, because I really do think it's a it's a decision-making process in plea bargains, because these aren't cases that typically go to trial. Right. The change was instant from the day the governor signed the legislation that was going in effect a year later. And that, to me, is really interesting. And that's something we wouldn't have been able to see with our data without decision tree analysis. In fact, it was your idea to even look at the date and bring it into the models. looks, again, at the most important variable and tracks the data down below. So in that, it identified states in specific states as having a major influence on conviction. And it grouped those states that you just mentioned as their own node. And then the decision tree essentially said, okay, we have these states here in their own group. What else within the data can we use to further predict the outcome of conviction? And for those states, the decision tree identified date of arrest as an important predictor, but only for those states. And it found, I believe it was around that specific date, that the conviction rates changed tremendously. Yeah, you're right. 100%. 100% happened after that fact, but only for those certain states. So that allowed us to understand that something is going on, number one, in those states, but also after that date, which, as you just mentioned, suggested some type of policy change. Yeah, well, sometimes it was actually a new law that went into effect, and other times it appeared to be 
a little bit more subtle in that there were new laws that went into effect, but there was actually policy change that was deliberate. So, for example, in the case of New Mexico, New Mexico has always had the reputation of being not tough on driving drunk. And the most uh, egregious example is Gallup, New Mexico, which is in western New Mexico, not far from where I lived as a little boy. I don't know if you know this, but my father worked on the Navajo Reservation in Fort Defiance, Arizona, which is 30 miles or so west of Gallup, New Mexico. And Gallup, New Mexico is a town I've driven through with my son about a decade ago or so, and it's known the drunk driving capital of the country. They seem to have a bad reputation for drunk driving in New Mexico. I looked into this and found a number of sources, newspaper articles, but also scholarly articles and policy-related publications that talk about there was a willful intent by the legislature, by the state government, by the governor's office and several administrations to change that reputation and to change their way of dealing with drunk driving in New Mexico. And a number of laws went into effect in the mid part of the last decade over a several year period that up the ante for penalties for drunk driving to show it's more serious. And that's exactly what we saw in the data here. And it's really interesting because we saw that as the state, there's other states like South Carolina where I think it was, what, 22, 23% yeah. conviction rate. And I asked a friend about this who practices law in South Carolina, happens to be a former police officer, who said that before I even told him what our data showed, I said, what do you think? police officer gets arrested for DUI in South Carolina, you know, are they likely to get convicted? And he's like, oh, absolutely not. We don't take DUI seriously here in this state. The state doesn't treat it as a serious thing. And I said, well, what about Georgia? And I knew already that my data showed that in Georgia, it's the polar opposite. There's well over 90% conviction rate for police officers who work in law enforcement agencies in Georgia and are arrested for DUI, they're going to get convicted. And I asked him that without telling him what we already knew in our data, and he said, oh, it's the opposite there. You're going to get convicted. They're real rough. They're tough on DUI in Georgia, and they're known for that. And it's exactly what we see. So it's not an issue of like, oh, that's the south or the southeastern part of the country or you know, it's not anything geographically per se that's going on, but there's something else going on. And it's really driven by public policy considerations and criminal justice policy. It's a state by state as opposed to geographic location. Yeah, it changes everything. And what was happening was when I was running the logistic regression models, state as a variable was confounding the results. So it actually had such a dramatic effect. It wasn't interpretable in a way that I could deal with it. So it actually made it statistically insignificant, but it, it wouldn't remove it. Statistical software would not remove it from the model. It kept staying in the model. Right. And as long as that variable was one that could be in the final model predicted by the, the software, it was always there. Couldn't do anything with it, and that's why we came to you with this. So with decision tree analysis, we've referred to something. We, we use chain analysis quite often, which is chi-square. Automatic interaction detector. There you go. Chi-square automatic interaction detector, C-H-A-I-D. Right. And there are several other types of decision tree analysis. And I don't know that we want to get too far into these different types of classification tree, decision tree analysis. But, you know, I know my own research, my own data sets, but what other kinds of research questions, what other kinds of data sets could we look at with decision tree analysis really would make sense to consider using as the statistical operation of choice. I think what they argue in the literature, and if you read about the rationale of using decision trees and why it was created, 
is what they call complex data, or there's a data with a lot of variables, or variables that are highly correlated with one another or have a lot of interactions. If it proves to be very difficult for regression models to use. Decision trees argues that, number one, the more cases you have, the better off you are. Um, but also the richness or the complexity of your data um, is something that it likes to use. So the more you have with interactions between variables, the better off the decision tree is going to be at creating a better model. So I think any type of data that has variables that intercorrelate with one another or you have a large number of cases or very unique data that you're finding, findings within a normal regression model that has large error terms, so they're like your, your state variable where it's correlated um, with certain things or it's having such a big effect, but it, you can't interpret it. Because how can you interpret a state by itself without looking at the specific states for any type of data like that? When I was working my, with my dissertation, we had a lot of variables. It was predicting domestic violence rate assault as to whether or not that occurred after these individuals left a domestic violence intervention program. But a lot of the independent predictors were so strongly correlated with one another that they had to be ejected from the model. In fact, a logistic regression removed them from the model. So we took half of the variables had to be eliminated. And these are variables that could be statistically significant, but together... The compounding effect and the interaction is causing error terms in the normal model. So I had to ditch those. But the purpose of me even beginning my research into decision trees is I was at a point where I'm throwing out literally half of the variables because you cannot run them in a logic model. I started doing research on how, to, how do you deal with interaction terms. And there was ways to deal with it by substituting means for the average or imputation and all this backwards way of trying to come up with points. And that's where it came about decision trees, which is somewhat related to cluster analysis. And I was able to implement or reintroduce those variables within the model. So I was throwing out possible predictive power or cases that I could predict with decision trees. So I was losing a lot of data. And another thing that we haven't really tapped into with our current research, but a major utility of decision trees is missing cases. Missing cases always tend to be ejected. So when you say missing cases, I give an example of that. In the data that I'm working with, police officers who've been arrested for crimes, there's several variables where we always, we have 500 cases. In 100 of those cases, we're just not going to know the age right. of the officer. We're not going to know their years of service. Those are two that we often have missing data. The third one is conviction, whether they're convicted or acquitted and what happens to the case. So those are three examples of missing data. You've got a, a large number of cases where you don't know on that specific variable any information, right? right. And what, happen, what, what happens in a typical model when you have that? So a typical regression model, what do you do? Well, you throw the variable out, wouldn't it? Right, you typically have to throw it out or you have to put in an alternative oh. number for that. Well, one way you can do that is you mentioned uh, imputation. So, which is some people frown upon that, but well, explain how that would work. So, what they do is you typically find that you know the most, I say, popular way is they find the average yep. of that yeah. and they input the average into that missing. The, well, the one missing way variable. one way is to simply take the the mean or the average of the known data, plug that into all the cases with the missing right. data. Then there's multiple imputation processes that computerize the algorithms. We have software that can run that will estimate a number and plug in a number based on some complicated algorithm. And so each case would get a different number. Yep, different number, but it's the best estimate as what should be there based on computer algorithms and statistical significance, correct? Correct. Which and a lot of people 
refute either refute that, meaning they do not believe in imputation. Well, it's a, it's a matter of, I don't know about believing in it, it's a matter of what's the best thing to do with this data. Can we make this right. data usable for the statistical analyses we want to run to answer the research questions we have? So you either throw out these cases or you come up with some mechanism to compensate for, to plug in values where you have missing data. So I guess I'm back to the question, though, of what can you do about that with decision tree analysis? What's different with classification tree analysis that would allow you to overcome that problem? Okay, so let's say we're looking at age, and we have 500 cases, and 100... Age of the offender? Age of the, say, age of the, <coughs> the officer who was arrested. Okay. And we have 500 cases. 100 of those cases, the, we don't have their age. We can't, it was not published in the article. What the decision tree will do is, if it splits age, let's say, for the purpose of this, 18 to 35, 36 and older. We have two categories within the decision Well, it tree. breaks it down. It, it decides what right. categories to make. Right. So if it, it selected those two categories, so we have, again, 18 to 35, 36 to 65. And then it looks at missing. It determines, statistically, if missing is more likely to be related to the 18 to 35 or the 36 to 65, or is it so unique that it's in its own category. So we'll actually statistically link them together or say that they're so unique, meaning those 100 cases are so unique, you have to look at them in a different scope, that they're not comparable to the other two categories. So it actually makes use of the data. It makes you, you can keep those 100 cases within your data set. You can use them in your model as opposed to rejecting them or adding all alternative value. And, the, and I gather from the way you're describing it is that the benefit here is we're not manipulating right. the data, which is the criticism of imputation processes. Right, and you have to, you know, when you're interpreting those results, you cannot, you know, you have to say, well, obviously the decision tree analysis argued that the missing 100 cases were different from the other two. We cannot make any interpretations upon those individuals because we don't know what those values are, but there's something going on in that group that makes them unique. But it also may put them together, so it may say statistically they're more likely to be grouped in with the 18 and 35 group. Okay. So that's another major advantage that you're not, as a researcher, forced to either engage in imputation or reject it. So it allows you to keep them. Okay. But, you know, collecting data, uh, whether it's survey methodology or using the methodology to use for your dissertation, your research, it's difficult that a lot of times a lot of respondents refuse to answer a certain question or it's hard to collect data. A lot of it's missing. Yeah, and, and again, with logistic regression and, and some other types of regression, the computer's just going to uh, eliminate those cases from the analysis. So if you started with a 1,000 cases and you're missing values in 200, it's just going to eliminate those. You're no longer going to have them there, and you're dealing with a smaller data set. Right, and, you know, a lot of those values don't impact every single variable. So, you know, looking at the decision trees, you know, going back to that example, is that there's different groups. If that variable is age, it may not be on the right side of the tree, so we don't have to worry about its influence. But in logic or regression, it doesn't look at it in that manner. It just rejects it because it says it's tied to everything, as opposed to tied to specific groups within a DAO. Okay. What else is important to know about no, I think, decision trees? Um, what I've noticed at conferences, we have a lot of clinicians that attend conferences that may not be statistical gurus or have academics who don't have a big background in stats, and they just want to know something simple. Present it to me in a manner that I can interpret it easily. I don't understand logic. I don't understand the interpretation of odds ratios, how to compute them. But when you present them the output, you can present the tree in a, you know, again, it goes back to a graphical image that looks like a family tree. 
that it's easy for somebody who doesn't have a lot of knowledge of decision trees to understand what's going on. Oh, it's intuitive. You can look at it as a person who's never taken a stats course and make sense of it. Right. It's really... It's so the graphical, I think the graphical aspect of it also makes it easy to interpret. It doesn't make it difficult for somebody who doesn't know a lot about it. So I, I'd always argue that if you're coming up with a, you know, for my dissertation, I came up with findings, again, predicting domestic violence reassault. And if I had you to... Say that, you said that I can't... Yeah, domestic violence reassault. Domestic violence what? Reassault. 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 Oh, you mean another assault. So after they these individuals went through a domestic violence prevention program, and then we followed them for 48 months in one-year intervals, and looked at whether or not they would engage in a future incident of violence. So you're looking at specific recidivism right. of reoffending For domestic violence. Okay, so it's domestic violence reassault. Reassault. Does that reassault mean the same victim? Reassault the same victim or another victim after they left the program. So we're looking at, number one, failure of the program. But we also need to provide clinicians. And what I argued for my decision tree is that I can go into a domestic violence court or intervention program and say that this person has an extremely high likelihood of reoffending because they're male. They are have previous addictions to um, alcohol and tobacco. Um, and, you know, whatever characteristics. So I can actually go through and assess each individual who's coming through, follow them through the tree, and give the clinician a predictive power of the likelihood of that individual reassaulting. When you talk about time to failure, what comes to mind to me is, what is it, Cox regression analysis? Yeah. So is it simply a matter of violating assumptions of Cox regression analysis as to why we're not looking at the traditional time to failure type statistical analyses? We're looking at decision trees? I think the thing that we can do with the system trees that we can move beyond that is we can add multiple time periods into that within one exact tree. How how would that work? So we can put the we can put down within we'd have to obviously label the variable as such to what month or what year they reassaulted and it would predict, okay, based upon whether or not they were engaged in alcohol abuse after leaving the program, whether or not they were whatever factors they were, here's if they either were like to reassault, reassault the first year, second year, etc. So it will, we could predict at what point in time they reassault, even if they do. But we found out that there was essentially a lagged effect that it worked in general for about a year. And after that year point, worked? the intervention program. Okay. So the men were not likely to reassault until they hit about a year. And that's when about 75% of them committed a future incident of domestic violence after a year. Okay. But we but, found an exact point in time where that threshold lit. All right. But you could do that with Cox regression analyses with a lot of data sets. But does, does decision tree analysis bring anything to the table where you can predict anything at that year that would uh, give us the different result? Yes, I can predict which groups will and which groups will not, and which characteristics about those groups will, will predict whether or not they reassault. So it's not just time to failure. No, it's not predicting. just time to failure. It's the specific aspects of those individuals versus the individuals who did not reassault. Okay, now that gets really interesting because as we look at, you know, there's been a tipping point in the last few years where many states have decided we can't continue locking everybody up. We're going broke. We can't continue building prisons. We can't afford to keep people locked up. By the way, they're finally figuring out that old inmates who've been locked up for a long time start to become a pretty significant burden in terms of the medical costs. So they're, 
they're looking at these issues of we got to stop locking everybody up. So if we start with uh, drug offenders, if we start with domestic violence offenders, people like that, we're looking at community corrections instead of uh, jail time or uh, lengthy prison time quite often, looking at either shorter jail time or community corrections where you're dealing with interventions in the community. And this is really interesting because I'm not sure when we talk about evidence-based programs in the criminal justice system, and there's a big push to know what works. We're not going to spend money on a drug intervention program, a domestic batterers intervention program, if it doesn't work. We want to know what works. And quite oftentimes, what works has been time to failure, has been recidivism at two years out, at a year out. So we know with drug courts, there's fairly low recidivism at six months out or a year out. It's really problematic with a lot of drug court programs at three years out. So what you're saying is we could actually not only tell what works, but we can predict why it works. Is that arguably what we might be able to do here? Yes, because we can predict those individuals who the program did not work for, what are the characteristics of those individuals that we can address as clinicians to prevent that from happening in the future? So if they, you know, get involved in high dependency on alcohol versus the group who did not reassault was not dependent on alcohol, that we know that we need to focus more on the intervention in between the alcohol dependency as a predictor as opposed to something else. So is decision tree analysis used in research with uh, public health? It is most frequently used in the medical field to identify clinical outcomes of whether or not, for instance, it's famous. To identify clinical outcomes or predictors of clinical outcomes? Both. Okay. So, for instance, it's a famous case that it was, you know, in the early 70s used in hospitals, actually, to predict whether or not individuals coming into the ER room, okay, when they go through your diagnostics. In the emergency room. In the emergency room. And so not getting into the room itself with a waiting room where they assess you. Right. Um, you know, like, the, say, think of fast ER. You walk in. Think of what? Fast ER. What is that? That's like a fast care. So instead of going to the ER, you go to... Oh, urgent care. Urgent care. Okay. So I'll go back to the example for myself. This past summer, I had a sizable rash on my thigh. I decided not to waste the actual ER's manpower, and I decided to go to the urgent care to determine whether or not this was tick-related, which we assumed it was. Tick-related? Tick. All right. Because it started to develop the famous red ring. Oh, my gosh. All right. So I roll and I rode my bike to the fast care, and I went in, and they went through the diagnostics, um, and they determined through all these questions and variables, essentially, as to whether or not I had potential tick bite. So what the decision trees were used in the medical field when an individual would come into the ER, they took their blood pressure, they took their you know, current heart rate, their sodium level, and what they were trying to predict is, if we have an individual in the ER who has a chest pain, do we need to send them immediately to the ER to get checked for a heart attack? Oh, where are they with chest pain? So they're in the waiting room for the ER. They walk they're in at there. the hospital waiting room. Right, they come in there, they say, my chest hurts. Okay. And then the nurse, you know, sticks you with the little thing to check your blood. They are checking your heart rate, your blood pressure. Does this person really have a risk of currently having a heart attack or are they just having heartburn? Did they eat the chicken wing, they got lodged down their throat and they're having heartburn or they have okay. acid reflux or are they actually having a heart attack? So the decision sheet was used in that manner to, again, predict. They need to Different go in. factors. Right. They need to go in. Because they're having a heart attack based upon the characteristics. So medical of this. risk factors. Right. So they're taking all these risk factors and making a prediction of this person needs to go in right away, versus this person is they're just you know hypochondriac. Right. So and the reason why it was used in the medical field is for cost reduction, because oh, if really? they if they assessed every single person had a heart heart pain coming into the urgent care and put them right into the rooms that had all the clinical doctors coming in, 
it's very costly. It also is ignoring some of the importance of that person's really having a heart attack versus that person's having a bad day. We need to focus on the person really having a heart attack, not the person with a bad day. So that's what they were using the decision tree for, is to identify the risk factors related to actually having a real heart attack versus just normal chest pain. So the, the interest in evidence-based practices and evidence-based programs in criminology and criminal justice comes from evidence-based medicine. Right. And I'm curious why we don't see a greater use of decision tree analysis in research involving criminology. There was a famous article in 1969 in which it was titled Sorcery, Wizardry, and Decision Trees. The author was arguing, this is junk, this is crazy, and they even wrote in the article. So they argued that it is based upon no theoretical foundation in the social sciences. It has no merit. It does not prove. It's not based upon theory. Okay, they were attacking it because it doesn't have any value in predicting or utilizing predictions for theories. Okay, because this argument was, who I assume is a theorist, was arguing that it, you're trying to throw in all these variables and making the computer tell you what is significant. So it's not based upon coming up with theoretical models to predict behavior. You're telling it to throw in all these variables, and it's selecting what. So it's data mining. Data mining. Right? So that's what they're trying to avoid. I think it came under a lot of scrutiny in the early '80s and '70s from that exact issue. And you know, it's always perceived that it was. You know, it had that black eye ever since then. And I think a lot of social scientists, those not just limit to criminology, but you know, sociology and psychology have always pointed to decision trees as that technique. It's data mining. You're not using theoretical facts to develop this model. How are you developing this? So I think that's one of the major reasons it has always been neglected, because it's considered data mining. There's no theoretical foundation. But the medical field doesn't care about theory. They only care about creating the best model to prevent certain things from happening. They don't care about theories that predict heart attacks. They want to prevent the most heart attacks they can with the best model. So the medical field is not really concerned with theories that would predict outcomes, but I think of the criminology field and sociology field are heavily laden with theorists who develop theoretical models to predict outcomes, which have been proven statistically. And I think that those individuals may not see the merit to just taking a bunch of variables and essentially dumping them into the decision tree bag and letting the decision tree bag filter out what's important. You have a decision tree bag? Yeah. That's what goes <laughs> on inside the computer. It just shakes it until the significant ones pop out the other Alrighty. side. That will do it for this episode of the Police Integrity Lost Podcast. For more information on our research in Bowling Green State University, please go to our website at www.bgsu.edu.